If you brought a copy of Scripture with you, you can find Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue in our series of unwrapping God's masterpiece, all that we have in Christ. And today we have a prayer, not actually a prayer, but how the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, and you're going to get a sense of how I and our elders pray for you today from this passage. Have you ever prayed with somebody that sort of transported you through their prayers into the presence of God? That kind of person who was so in touch with God uh, that just, it's just like, I just loved praying with them. Uh, I had a man like that. His name was George many years ago. Uh, he was an older man in his 80s. When he prayed, he prayed scripture. He prayed descriptions of God, and he would always pray so effortlessly, so naturally, and always with tears. And I was moved every time he would pray. Uh, that's what this passage of Scripture in Ephesians 1, where we go in, in beginning in verse 15, is going gonna, is gonna to take us. It's going gonna, it's gonna, catapult us into a loftier kind of prayer, a more godly kind of prayer. And it's going to be way different than the way you pray for yourself or, or others would be my, my sense. Um, Moody once said that most men's prayers need to be cut at both ends and set fire in the middle. So it's not a lengthy prayer, but it is one that's on fire. And so again, in, verse, in verses 15 through 20, this is not actually a prayer. We're going to see his prayer in chapter 3, an actual prayer. But this is how he prayed for the Ephesian church. It's how I'm praying for you here at Sailorville. And without further ado, verse 15. For this reason, all that God has done for us in Christ, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, what a description, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And here's the showstopper line, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness, not just greatness, but surpassing greatness, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name, that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So we're going to kind of wrap this entire way in which Paul was praying for the church with this gift of, say it everyone, illumination, all right? So when we think of illumination, we actually think of the way God, the Holy Spirit, opens up our senses, opens up our minds. And this is, is what he's talking about here. David uh, actually prayed once for the powers of observation. Do you remember that? He said, open thou my eyes. That's old King James there, but open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Have you ever read that? So that was David asking for il the illuminating powers of God, okay? And if you think about it, Bible prayers are in... 
they are embarrassingly different than the ones we more often offer up to God. Take evangelizing, for instance. How often do you pray for somebody's salvation? I'm guessing you do. Not that that's wrong, and you have rare glimpses of that in the New Testament, but rare. Actually, the New Testament puts the emphasis on praying for someone to get an opportunity to evangelize. Paul said in Colossians 4, pray for me that a door will be opened to me. And in this epistle, he says in chapter 6, that I, that I will be given words. In fact, the Greek word carries the idea of to be able to elucidate the gospel, make it clear, that is, okay? And so that's the kind of prayer. In fact, by the way, just the other day, a gal in our church texted me to say she took so seriously the illustration I gave last week for the opportunity God gave me on the plane to share with that gal that she too jumped on a plane praying fervently that God would give her an opportunity, but she also was kind of thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here? She brought a Christian book with her as a prop. <laughs> and she entered into a conversation with the gal, but nothing really was happening. The whole flight was just kind of surfacy chit-chat. And as they were descending, the gal said, hey, what's that book you're reading? There's a book on forgiveness. She quoted Ephesians 4 and 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. And the gal said, oh my goodness, I just left my sisters. I'm in a church that doesn't preach the gospel. I was wondering if we should enter into a Bible study so I, should know, I could know more. Can you believe that? I'm telling you, it's the prayer that God will answer quicker than any prayer prayed sincerely you will ever pray. And, it's, and it goes right along with missions. We are in the midst of a missions conference. And when Jesus talked about, uh, about people getting saved, here's, how he, here's what he told you and me to do. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth, literally hurl forth, thrust forth uh, servants, laborers into his harvest. That's how we're supposed to pray. And this is how I pray for you. I mean, this prayer is, is, did you see anything physical in this prayer? Do you see anything for Paul praying for anybody's sore back or, or uh, uh, you know, their migraines that they're having or, or the cancer that needs to be, is there anything like that in there? And do you know of any prayer like that in the New Testament? Again, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying get your priorities right. My wife, as I've mentioned a few times, not to exploit her anymore, promise me done after today, honey. You know, she had a, she had a major surgery, and it's been, it's been a slugfest to come back. And I do pray for her physically, but I have prayed all along for her heart and her mind as well, that she would learn, like the psalmist said, it's good that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. That's how I'm praying for her, and that's how I pray for you. Similarly, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians doesn't really align itself with a lot of our prayers. So just from the reading, notice that his prayer for the Ephesians is inspired by gratitude. It's energized by the triune God. All three persons of the Godhead are mentioned in verses 13 through 17. In fact, Father, I, meant, I, I emphasize, he's called the Father of glory. John calls him the Father of lights. Very descriptive. And it's also constant and ongoing. Verse 16, I don't cease to pray for you. And I have to be candid. I do cease to pray for some people. When someone continually resists the gospel, says no to Christ, says no to truth, there's a time where I just, I walk away. I just do. God told Jeremiah not once but three times, don't pray for them. And there are times that I do that myself. 
But for the most part, and for most of you, I pray constantly. And not for all of your physical maladies that you're dealing with. I do pray for those things. I don't want you to think I'm heartless. But I want you to be heartful. I want you to know the one true God in the deepest sense that he wants you to know him here. That's my prayer for you. And by the way, this is, again, along those lines, it is a decidedly spiritual prayer and and loftier in its request. Again, though natural, you're going to be hard-pressed to find in the New Testament prayers for just physical healing. In fact, I can't think of any just for physical healing. You got people coming to Jesus just for that. But when... When, they are, when there is a prayer for physical healing, it's usually tied into somebody's salvation or their spiritual depth or, of growth. Uh, of growth. So, so, for instance, so in uh, 3 John, John says this. He says, I pray that it would go well with you and that you would be in good health. That's a nice prayer, isn't it? And then he adds this addendum. Just as your soul is in good health or it's prospering. In other words, John says, I'm praying for you physically in accordance with your spiritual condition. Well, I can't pray that way for you. Not all of you. If I prayed that for all of you, some of you would drop dead because your souls are not alive. But I do pray that specifically for some of you. That's John's words, not me. Don't blame that on me. Blame that on John. So, But you see here, the prayers are tied in to our walk with God. And so, Sailorville Church, my prayer for you this morning and beyond is that you would experience, first and foremost, inspiration to increase your spiritual depth. Now, you might ask why we need that because verse 3 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ in with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So if you are in Christ, where all these blessings come from, you're already blessed. You've got every spiritual blessing. You don't need any more, right? Or do you? And some would say, well, close the book. I, I've already got everything I need. But why pursue more? Because so much more is to be had in Christ. I was at a men's conference a couple of weeks ago preaching out in California, and uh, I was tasked with preaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, defining them and developing them. And the part about developing, the sermon on developing, was a real personal challenge to me and a blessing. And I had just landed prior to preaching, and I'd had this experience I told you about a week ago where God gave me this great opportunity with my new Mormon friend on the plane. And, uh, and I, I was thinking about it in the whole business of developing the gifts And I thought to myself, 20 years ago, had I had that experience with my Mormon friend, I would have have pressed to make a convert, and I would have lost a friend. So I didn't make a convert on the plane, but I did gain a friend, and I'm hoping I can befriend her forever in the development of my gifts that God has given to me. I don't know if you noticed just in the reading here, but the Christian triad of faith, hope, and love were mentioned here. By the way, that triad is mentioned six times in the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. And most famously, you know it at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. And now abide, say it with me, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? Now, we we know that. That's actually mentioned six 
times, including in this passage in the New Testament. And why do I say this? Because God wants you to go deep in your walk with him. And the question I ask myself, the question I would ask you, the way I'm praying for you, is the depth of your growth producing increasing faith, hope, and love? That might be the barometer that you can put against yourself to determine whether or not you're growing in Christ. Am I increasing in my faith, in my hope, which we'll talk about more at length, and in love? And speaking of increasing, look here again, verse 17. He says, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. Think little s. The ESV has a capitalist. That's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. It's talking about the spirit within you if you're a Christian that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So, But he, they're taking some interpretive liberties here is what I'm telling you. May give you the spirit of wisdom and of, of revelation and of the knowledge of him. Wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of him. Wisdom is just knowledge applied. That's taking what you know and doing something with it. The Jews had a, had a line, I know, therefore I do. That's wisdom. Revelation, the word revelation, apocalypsis means, it means to uncover. It just means to uncover. And herein lies the problem for some of you. Truth is still covered up for you. You don't really see it. Your, your, your spiritual mind is still blind. This is what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded your mind so that you can't believe until you turn to Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, as we mentioned last week, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they are foolishness to him, because spiritual things are spiritually understood. And if you're not walking with God, revelation is still covered. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that revelation would open itself up to you, that you would understand the will of God according to the word of God. And that's my prayer for you. And then knowledge. Knowledge is exactly what you think it is. It's information. And you do need information to rightly worship God. Can I get an amen to that? If you're shallow in your understanding of God, so is your worship. I, I, remember, here's what Paul said. You might say, well, I'm zealous. That doesn't replace knowledge. What a combination to have zeal and knowledge, though. Paul said... In Romans chapter 10, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking after their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of Christ. And so, in other words, the problem with the Jews was not zeal, it was knowledge. And that's what makes Jen Wilkins' famous quote worth knowing and memorizing, though it's extra biblical. Here it is. Your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. Great line, and it's so true. Some of you just want more to know. God wants you to know him. Some of you just want to know more. God wants you to know him. That's why Jeremiah says, let, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories, let him who boasts, let the one who brags, brag like this. 
that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. Amen? And that's how I'm praying for you. For inspiration that would increase your spiritual depth. And I'm praying for illumination. Now, again, we're wrapping it all up in this, but illumination to see beyond life's circumstances. Because so many of you get so tamped down on terra firma, you can't see beyond yourself or your circumstances you're living in. And this is the showstopper, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart be enlightened, not the brains in your head increased. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. Why? So that you may know, watch it, wait for it. In fact, the Greek literally says the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. That's God's calling. We'll come back to that. The word hope here is, a, it's, not like, it's not like you and I and we say, well, I hope so. That's not the idea. The word hope in the New Testament, literally you can write, if you're writing in your Bible, write expectation. It is a sure expectation. When you read the word hope connected to you and your walk with God, it's talking about expectation. Now listen carefully. Listen very carefully. The opposite of hope is hopelessness. That is a life without expectation. Purposelessness. And if you want to know what hell is going to be like, if you're thinking fire and darkness and pain and suffering, you're on to it, but that's almost shallow compared to the destiny of the damned. And that's some of you outside of Jesus right now. Hell will be a place of eternal purposelessness. Mere existence with no hope of any life-invigorating reason to exist, and yet exist you will forever, Christless, gloryless, and hopelessness. That's awful, is it not? My friend Lynn, I've, I've shared this years ago. I was in a Hardee's. The manager comes up to us at the end of the shift. We interacted with him. I said, Lynn, what's your purpose in life? I'll never forget what he said. He looked at us, wasn't being sarcastic, wasn't being snarky. As honest as he could be, he said, put his hands in the pie, he goes, I don't have any purpose. I'm just taking up space. We entered into a study with Lynn. He came to Jesus, and he got purpose as well as life. And then he just a couple of years ago, I walked through the foyer on my way in here to preach, and I'm going, Lynn! He showed up, drove several miles, brought his wife and all of his kids to, to, so they could hear me preach, so he could bring them to the guy who led him to Jesus, and he's going on for Christ with hope, with purpose. Now, we've all had our expectations dashed at one time or another, right? Right? If, if you've ever had an expectation dashed, just raise your hand real quick. Okay, that's everybody in this room, even little kids. I mean, the trip is canceled. The job interview doesn't go right. Somebody else gets picked instead of you. Your dreams and your marriage, your friends, your kids, your health. All things and all people who we hope in, we build expectations in, 
and they all disappoint us, right? Don't look at anybody. Just say, right. (laughs) But listen carefully. None of those, none of those are eternal. None of them. Trip doesn't go right, you rebook, right? Job job doesn't work out, you rebid. You readjust. You remarry. You retool. A lot of other re's. But God, you have to see in the process. You have to see in the illuminating of God allowing you to see beyond. You've got to see that whatever God is doing in your life, whatever sorrow he's sowing in, whatever difficulty you're enduring, whatever it is, it's with purpose. Tozer was right when he said it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he hurts him deeply. And I don't pray that God will hurt you. So, you know, go like this. I don't. But I do know that unless he does, you won't see him like you need to. Disappointed? Yes. Hopeless? Never if you're in Christ. Amen? Not when you're illuminated. And this is why I love this. This is why Paul says in in Romans, God's hope will never disappoint. Hallelujah. In fact, let me tell you something. Hope is so powerful. It's so powerful to the Christian that it actually saves you. I can prove it to you. Here's what it says in Romans 8. Romans 8. For in this hope you were, say it, saved. Now, hope that seems, that's not hope. But who hopes for what he sees? But if you hope for what you do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, here's the question as you stare at that verse. How does hope save us? It's not a trick question. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I think it saves us in this life. It saves us in this life. Trusting Jesus doesn't just give you hope in the future. It gives you hope now. This is the hope that the the sustaining grace of God is made of. It reminds us, as the hymn writer put it, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. And this is how I'm praying for you that you would have inspiration, depth in your growth, and illumination to see beyond your personal life circumstances. And and also the worth of God's inheritance. Did, Did you see that there? Eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you were called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We've already talked about inheritance up here. It's one of those gifts mentioned already. You know what comes to your mind when you think of an inheritance? My mother died 10 years ago this year. My dad, a couple of years before my mom. She had nine kids. I was number eight out of nine. And we weren't poor, per se, but we pretty much lived hand to mouth all of our life. And so you can imagine, I was shocked. Nine kids, when she died, we all got $9,000. I thought I was rich. $9,000. I'm just glad she put me in the will. (laughs) But it's all relative, isn't it? 
Riches are so relative. I'll never forget that day I learned this in striking fashion. John Nemers, our evangelism director, was like five years old, maybe six. And, uh, and he wanted to have his friend over, his little Hispanic friend who lived in a trailer court. So we went over to get him. I remember, I mean, we lived in a home. It wasn't a mansion. <laughs> it was functional. And uh, I went over to get his friend, and there was John in the car, and there's, there's a trailer with a, with a piece of plywood over an opening that was the door. And he came out, got in the car, and he and John just chatted all the way over to our house. We got out of the car, and we started walking through the garage, mind you, which wasn't very clean. We're in the garage. We're in the garage, not even the house. We're in the garage. And John's friend looks up and goes, wow, John, you're rich. And I remember looking down thinking, yeah, it's all relative to the inheritance, to the wealth, to the, oh, my goodness, what you have in Christ. And that is my prayer for you, that you would embrace not the riches you are going after, grasping after in this world, but grasp what you have in Christ. Verse 11, by the way, when John dealt with the inheritance when in his message, that's the inheritance that's your inheritance and mine. This is actually God's inheritance. Do you see that there? This is, this is the inheritance that, that is God's. Listen carefully. Look at verse 18. What, is, what are the riches of his, his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is, this is mind-boggling. You and I have an inheritance, but now he's saying, you who are in Christ are God's inheritance. You have, when you come to Christ, he possesses you, right? You've been bought with a price, right? So glorify God in your way. God owns you. You are his inheritance. And how he longs for you and me who know him to be with him. This is what Jesus, remember before he died, he said, Father, glorify your son with the glory that I had before I came here. And I want them to be with me so they can behold my glory. He longs for you and I because we're his inheritance. And that's how I pray for you. Oh, God, open their eyes, strengthen their hearts that they can see the worth of their inheritance. And finally, initiation. This is how I pray for you. Initiation. That is to experience and to exercise God's power in your life. When a specific prayer is answered, when some inexplicable spiritual courage rushes into you to do something right, when a word from your mouth to somebody else brings them to repentance, when you're able to say no to some temptation, and when a soul is converted in front of you, that is the power of God coming from you, coming from within you. And I mean this. This isn't Joel Osteen talk here. 
This is what we're told in chapter 3 and verse 20. My God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think according to the power in us. God has given you that power. And my prayer is that you would initiate it, you would experience, and you would exercise that power. In verses 19 and 20, he's so hung up on this, he just gives us a cavalcade of words. All relate, words translated power and might and work, working, four of them to be exact. In fact, he calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power. See that there? These words are awesome. I'm going to give them to you. First one is dunamis. That's the word power. We get our word dynamite from this word. You want to get something out of the way, you blow it up. Amen? We get our word dynamic from this word. It is, this word reminds us that God's power is not so much something you learn as experience. You don't learn power, you experience it. What's more, it is the power. Did you notice the text? It's the same power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. It's in me. And it's power that was promised to you, promised to me if you're in Christ. This is what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, he said, hey, are you going to restore your kingdom now? Because we're all about prophecy. We want to know what's going on. And the Antichrist is going to come and all this. Hey, Shut your mouth. That's what he said, kind of. Here's what you need. It's not for you to know the times and seasons. He did say that. Here's what you need to know. You're going to receive dunamis, power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. That's the power you need. The power to be a real, articulate, Christ-honoring, Holy Spirit-filled witness for Jesus Christ. The next word is, is another cool Greek word. I only give you Greek words when they have some English association. They're just kind of cool that way. I'm not trying to wow you here. The next word is energia. You can hear the word energy, can't you? And, and this, is, this, is, this is the power to keep going. This is, this is the power that Paul talked about at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord as so much as you know your labor is not in vain when it's in the Lord. This is, this is, this is the energy, the power that keeps you going. And the third word is the word, it's the word kratos. It's, it's not as often, but this is a really cool word. This word is, it means exerted power. This is the power to obey. You know what a poser is, don't you? You're an opposer is, right? There are posers that are men, and there are posers that are women. All you got to do is go on social media, and you got the women flaunting their bodies in you know, order to sell a product, and flaunting their looks, flaunting their, flaunting their beauty, and you got guys up there flaunting their biceps and their abs. They're posers. They're doing nothing with this energy. This is the spiritual power that God gives to you to exert it for his glory, to do something with it. It is the power that James talks about. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, because when you do that, what do you do? You deceive yourself, right? So kratos, exerted power. And lastly, the last word is a word, iskus. You don't need to remember these words, but I, this is the word which is the power to resist. And we need power to resist, don't we? I do. 
to resist temptation. Jesus told us when we pray, lead us not into temptation, right? You're asking for the power to resist. That power is in you. That power is mentioned here. That's the grace of God. Titus, this is the Titus 2 power where God says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no, literally Greek rendering, say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. That's the power I shared with you. I, when I, two weeks after becoming a Christian, I was, uh, I, I, was a, I was a Christian. I was under conviction, smoked a couple of packs of cigarettes a day, trying to quit, told my wife I needed to put gas in the car, which was true, but the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Because what I really wanted was a cigarette. And I'm driving up to my father, my lost, unsaved father-in-laws to get that cigarette. And as I'm driving up Baltimore Avenue, I can just picture the devil just pulling me up there, come and get it, come and get it. And I literally was just fighting it. And I can still remember holding my Volkswagen steering wheel and saying, I'd never read Titus 2 before, and saying, no, I literally verbalized it. I said, no, and I turned the car and snapped. I kid you not, as God himself is my witness. I felt a release. I never touched another cigarette after that. It was God's supernatural power given to me in Christ. Was it my own? Not I, but the grace of God in me. Amen? To say no. And we're going we're to come back to this needed power in chapter 6 where we have to resist the evil one. But this is how I'm praying for you. I'm not praying for your bunions and your bad backs and everything else you got going that, you know, make whatever malady you got. Don't lay it on me. Well, yeah, you can, and I'll pray for it, I guess. But this is what I'm praying for you. This is where I want to take you. This is where my heart is. We're in the midst of a missionary conference, and we confirmed it with our missionaries yesterday. There's not a missionary out there that's worth his salt or her salt that doesn't at one point say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do, go wherever you want me to go, be whoever you want me to be. And I want to conclude our time talking about Helen Rosevere, a modern-day hero. I wish I had met her. She just died five years ago, 91 years old. When she was a teenager, she heard Graham Scogie preach. Graham Scogie was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Charles Spurgeon preached. She came to Christ that night. And Graham looked at Helen and said, he quoted Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. You've read that, right? And Graham said to Helen, he said, you've, you've met the first part today. You've come to know him. I'm praying that you will experience the power of the resurrected Jesus. And that in time, you'll understand what it means to fellowship with his sufferings. It was like a prophecy of her, over her, so to speak. When she was 28 years old, she went to the Congo as a missionary. But before she did this, she prayed this prayer. She left that meeting, and she prayed this prayer. Literally, she wrote, okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. Remember that, because that's what I'm going to tattoo you with later on in a moment, okay? 1953, 28 years old, goes to the heart of Africa, starts schools for nurses, a, maturity, a, a, a maternity ward, 
and something for lepers. A center. 48 clinics. 48 clinics. I mean, this is a missionary's dream. Right? But in 1964, war broke out in the Congo. She and 10 other missionaries were arrested. They were beaten. They were humiliated. They were imprisoned. And when she tried to escape, they beat her mercilessly. And on October 29, 1964, she was raped. And she tells how ashamed she was. And she pled with God because she felt like God had left her. He'd failed her. He'd forgotten her. But in the midst of her sorrow, one night in the darkest moment of her life, she sensed God say to her, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is that you loan me your body. In that moment, Helen Roosevelt records that she was so overwhelmed with the love of God and his presence in that dark place. And the privilege, and that became the key word for the rest of her life, the privilege to be used for him. Years later, she wrote, one word became unbelievably clear, privilege. God didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. And then this, the privilege he offers you is greater than the price you have to pay. The privilege is greater than the price. Do you believe that? My prayer for you, Sailorville Church, is that God would give you inspiration to increase your spiritual depth, illumination, to be able to see beyond your circumstances and initiation to experience and exercise his power. That's how I'm praying for you. Would you stand right now? Everyone just stand right now. As our praise team comes out, I would like you to put your hands out like this. Just put them out like this. Would you? Now, just, you don't have to do this if your heart's not in it. But would you be willing to say, okay, Lord. Okay, Lord. Do whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. Could you pray that right now? Lord, do whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. Some of you are young here, and you need to answer the call to mission. 
called to the ministry, called to the mission field, would you say yes to God? Some of you are older. One of our missionaries didn't, re- didn't answer the call until he was in his 40s. That might be some of you. Would you be willing to say, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Would you pray that? And I don't give invitations very often, but I'm going to do so. We're going to sing a song. You can put your hands down. If God has gripped your heart to say yes to him, no one's going to, you just come up here and pray as a public expression to say, I am, I'm there. I am totally there, whatever that means. Let's sing with all of our hearts.